Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. So thank you really a lot for the people who just sat through my three-hour class who are here to hear me again. Um, and for, for those of you who just had that experience and for my former students who I see here, I think you're going to hear things you've heard before. Um, what I think is very powerful about the economic way of thinking, and I don't think this can be repeated enough, is that um, it allows us to understand human beings. And if we want to stop terrorists, if we want to stop dictators, if we want to, want to make the bad things um, go away, um, I think we have to understand how people respond to their institutional environments and the incentives they face. Uh, uh, I have a picture of it uh, that I'll show you later. I probably have way more PowerPoint slides than I can go through, but it's always good to have extra material. Of George Bush um, standing in ground zero right after the 9-11 attacks occurred. And there's a very famous quote where he says, you know, we're not going to stop till we remove the terrorists from the planet. You can imagine right after 9-11, that's a very reasonable claim to make, right? We were all very terrified. As Americans, the world was terrified. And the world was watching the United States to see what we were going to do. And so I think that that was a moment that was really important. And the policy that responds uh, to terrorism is probably where we need to really focus a lot of our energies as economists. Because we want to understand if it's effective. And if it's effective, we might want to do more of it, right? But if it's not effective, we have to be intellectually honest and revert our course or do something different. And that's really why I think... And those of you who have had my class before have heard me talk about this probably ad nauseum, that uh, we can't really get to the right solution without making economics a part of our policy discussions. We tend to think that economic freedom is something we'll deal with later. Let's get Afghanistan, Afghanistan to be a place that has democratic-type institutions, or better institutions, or a better government. Maybe even marginal improvements are all we can ask for today. And we'll let the economics and the markets, they'll follow. That's a reasonable thing to conclude. But we actually have to look at the evidence and say, is that the way history has operated? Is political freedom something that comes first and only then can we get markets to work? Or does economic freedom come before political freedom? So I want to talk about a lot of that in a very short period of time. I also apologize for the extensive technical delays. Um, I have to leave pretty much right at the end of this, but um, if anybody wants to grab coffee at another time, uh, I love coffee, so, um, and I love students and um, all people, so <laughs> I'd love to do that. So this is, if you, again, if you've had my course, you're just going to bear through this story again. I like to tell through, uh, teach economics by telling stories, and this is my title. This is not kind of like, you could Google this story, and you wouldn't find this as the article title, but this is my title. Yeltsin discovers economic freedom. So this is Boris Yeltsin. You might think, what does this have to do with terrorism? But I'm going to get there. Boris Yeltsin is the president of Russia after the fall of, of the Soviet Union and kind of the collapse of Gorbachev's efforts. And this picture, this is a real picture. It's taken in, uh, I believe, 1990, maybe 1991. Yeltsin was visiting then President George Bush. He was in Houston, Texas. And he uh, went to the Johnson Space Center, which is what diplomats do, right? Um, we say, look at all the great stuff we're doing in space. Come see. And, you know, the Russians were, no, um, were not 
new to that. They said, yeah, we can do this too. So Boris Yeltsin is there. I'm adding my own little commentary to this story, but I have to imagine what this was like. Uh, Boris Yeltsin's like, yeah, this is all great. I like space too. But I'd like to go see a grocery store. True story. Uh, so you can only imagine this, the Secret Service brouhaha that ensues after an unscheduled trip to a grocery store uh, with Yeltsin. But it happens. They go to a grocery store. This is Randall's grocery store. By the way, I was giving a talk like this last week in a crowd, and the founder of Randall's grocery store was there. <laughs> I didn't say anything wrong, right? This is a true story. He's like, yeah, it's true. Okay, okay. So Randall's grocery store in Houston, Texas, and he walks in, and it's an ordinary Tuesday, and people are milling around as they do in grocery stores, and he is totally changed by this experience and by what he sees. He, <clears throat> that's his wife next to him, they're in the popsicle aisle. I find that particularly exciting as well. <laughs> it's tricks, popsicles, there's Hershey syrup. I mean, it's a smorgasbord, right? It's, it's all the things we want. <clears throat> there's a lot of profound things in this picture. I could spend the whole time talking about it, but I won't. But I'll just say a few things. One is that Boris Yeltsin said, upon discovering this grocery store, if the Russian people knew of this, surely they'd revolt. That's what he said. He later kind of muses about this in the limo ride on the way back, and he writes about this experience later in his autobiography, and he says it's what caused him to be a reformer to the extent that he was, was an American grocery store. Because, see, in Russia, you didn't get grocery stores under, under communism. People starved. Even the, the elite of the elite didn't get to benefit from the popsicle aisle the way you and I do, and we're ordinary people. There's something really profound about that. And I think we tend to think about the war on terrorism as crushing the bad guys. And I think we do have to crush the bad guys, right? Um, you have to get them out of there. But the, that's the short-term view. So I'm going to put the bottom line up front, right? That's when, we, when I work for the CIA. That's how we do everything. Bottom line up front, in case I get shot right after this talk. <laughs> Something. A bottom line up front is we can't just focus on crushing the bad guys. Because a new guy, new bad guy will always be there to replace the old bad guy. This is true not just of terrorists, by the way. It's a, true of dictators. I'm teaching a class this semester, not at this school, um, called the, the Economics of Terrorists and Dictators. And we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the formation of terrorist groups, why it happens in some places and why not in others, and why dictators are able to take hold in some countries and not in others. And what are the constraints that those people face? That's what we want to know. Right? So the thing about it is, is that there are people who voluntarily wake up in the morning in certain places and they say, I'm going to join a terrorist group. That's the best choice for me to get whatever it is that I want. It's um, prudent of us to understand why they make that choice and to not write them off as crazy. We can't do that. And to also keep the grocery store in our mind, because the grocery store is a product of living in a society that has institutions that foster the service of strangers. That's the key here. Today, you can go to Safeway, you can go to Starbucks, you can go to Whole Foods right down the street, you can go to a million consumer places, right? Right around the couple blocks that surround us. And there are strangers waiting to serve you. And they're going to go to extraordinary efforts to make sure you don't get poisoned by the food you eat or the drinks you consume, to make that your prescription drugs are safe, to make sure that you're, you, know, you have the best version of that thing. And it's not because America is run by altruists. It's not because we're run by Mother Teresa's and we're always good. We're just always people. 
So that's where um, my own research on terrorism, which started as a graduate student. I went to George Mason University, and 9-11 happened while I was in graduate school. That started my research journey. And I wanted to say, what, does, what do economists have to add to this conversation? Why are we different than what you know, pol political scientists have to say, and sociologists, and psychologists, and historians? All those people are important, but I think uh, generally in the policy space, we've left economists out of this conversation. We say, oh, economists can talk about GDP and trade deficits and whether those are good or bad. And if you take my class, we talk about that stuff. But what does economics have to say about the helping us have a broader and more fundamental understanding of why people choose terrorism? Because I'm here to say that they're choosing it. That should concern us. And, you know, when George Bush gets on the, the ground zero and says we're going to stamp terrorism off the planet, I think that he makes claims that he cannot support. Terrorism has existed since humans have existed, right? So we have a new, Al-Qaeda brought onto the scene a new, very effective way of engaging in terrorism. We need to understand that, right? But terrorism is not a new idea. So the question is, why are some societies riddled with terrorism? Riddled with rule by thugs, literally, right? Where the elites prey on everyone else, and that's the only way they benefit. This is Communist Russia, it's Venezuela today. It's Nigeria, rampant with different terrorist groups and, and bombings and innocent civilians don't know where to go, don't know what to do, right? They, we want them to have a world of grocery stores. So I want you to keep that story in the back of your mind because that's what economic freedom is about. Economic freedom is about strangers having reasons to serve strangers. And economic freedom provides a pathway to a world where political institutions protect people instead of plunder them. That's the other factor that matters here a lot. See, the problem with Afghanistan or Iraq is that the government is notorious for being the worst oppressors on the planet. Because we have a very opposite view of our government, right? The American government exists to protect rights that we came to the table with. That's the values that undergird our society, and they're really important. Because it means there's a really big limits on what the government can do, both by practical means and by ethical ones. And that there's a boundary that we put in the line, not just writing it down on a piece of paper, because any dictator can just come change a constitution. It's not just about the paper. It's about the constraints. Right? So even if the worst person, the person you hate the most, wins a presidential election, most of us don't storm the White House the next day. Why? Because the institution protects us from the worst person on their worst day. The institution of the presidency of American government. This is not, this has never been the case in Afghanistan. They don't have a historical memory of economic freedom or political freedom. So what I want to say is in the, in the long war on terrorism, we have to advocate, again, bottom line up front, for better economic freedom. Another claim I'm going to make, which is not my own claim, it's Milton Friedman's claim, is that economic freedom is a necessary condition for political freedom. In other words, it comes first. You've got to have a world where people are starting to think about opening up grocery stores before you're going to have democratic government. That is shocking to some people to hear. And it's certainly not the course we pursue in our foreign policy. Foreign policy today in Afghanistan is not, let's let markets get established and then worry about democratic constraints. We actually do the opposite. Let's get democratic institutions where we can help, because we know how to do that well. And we do know how to do that well, right? 
and then the markets will come later. So what if our whole idea framework is wrong? If our idea about how we get democracy and that democracy is a way to stop the terrorists, because remember, they're choosing, we want them to choose to start a political party that operates within the rule of law. I would be happy with that if, that, if Al-Qaeda was that, wouldn't you? They're a political party now. They don't kill people. They may have an extreme radical vision of what they want, but they operate within the rule of law. Great. How do you get that? That's the question, right? So I think there's two things I would say up front. One is utopia is not possible. We are never going to get a world with zero terrorism. Zero terrorism costs us infinity. It means you don't get a laptop, you don't get to drive a car, you don't have to have the internet, because these are all tools that can be used for good or for bad. So it's not about changing the tools, it's about changing the incentives that people face. And it's about taking people as they are, not trying to change them into something they cannot be. We're not trying, we're not looking for a world where everybody's an altruist, or everybody's a Mother Teresa. Mother Teresas are good, we're not against Mother Teresas. But the way to get a productive, flourishing, free society is not to find the Mother Teresas and put them in charge of CEOs. Because we're just going to be left short-handed, right? I wouldn't even charge, you know, trust myself to do that. So here's kind of some of the fundamentals of economics. Uh, economic, I just want to give you a little bit of the economic way of thinking, and then we're going to zoom right to the macro kind of economic freedom. This is kind of articulated in a huge book called Human Action. That's the name of the book. It's by Ludwig von Mises. And he says that all human, human beings are the lowest common denominator of choice. So we're born into a family. We're born into communities. We're not kind of these rugged individualists who don't need anyone. In fact, we need people greatly. But only individuals choose. And so Mises, in this tome he writes on economics, is trying to figure out what makes an individual act. What sets them in motion. And he said it's three things. One, we experience a state of uneasiness. Two, we have a vision for a better outcome. And three, we take conscious and purposeful steps to get there. This is... Most, you know, kind of micro 101 classes don't even teach you this. And this is all you need to know, frankly, about individual choice, which is what microeconomics is about. Here's what might sound crazy, but this is what I did when, in my own research when I was thinking about the guys, mostly, right, that support Al-Qaeda, is that these assumptions that I apply to all other human beings apply to them. They experience a state of uneasiness, they're unhappy with their situation, whether it's religious, economic, political, cultural, I would say it's all of those, right? They have a vision. It might not be a reasonable vision. We might not agree with the vision, but all we're saying is that terrorists here are purposeful. They follow the same purposeful, you know, profit-maximizing behavior that what the rest of us do, right? So here's a personal example. You wake up in the morning and you're hungry. You have a vision. I can stop being hungry, but I got to do something. I have to eat. And you can choose a lot of different ways to satisfy that, right? But you eat, and then you're not hungry anymore. So those three things, it means that we're purposeful. To run around and say, which is the rhetoric that came around right after 9-11, which I found, I think, the most disturbing, that terrorists are irrational, is incorrect. Human beings are rational in this sense. When we say rational as economists, we don't mean that the, the same way that a psychologist means it. You know, have you ever had a, a fight with your significant other, or your parents, or what, your spouse, or whatever, your sibling? You're being irrational, right? It's okay to still say that, if you're right. Right? You're being <laughs> irrational. We don't mean that you're crazy. When economists use the word rational, here's what we mean. We assess risks. 
that human beings, when they're gauging in purposeful behavior, it means they're trying to maximize their own benefit and minimize the cost. So when I say to you that terrorists are rational, that's what I mean. They're going to find the lowest cost method to get what they want. If you read the 9-11 Commission report, which is fascinating and tells you much about this, you see, when you look at the planning that went on in Al-Qaeda in the early days prior to the 9-11 attacks, it's exactly what they were doing. In fact, 9-11 was supposed to be much bigger than it was. Can you imagine that? It was supposed to be um, global. There were supposed to be simultaneous attacks. This was the original vision. From what we know from detainee reports, so to the extent that those are true, okay? Uh, there was supposed to be, there was a vision of simultaneous attacks in Japan and the United States. Can you imagine what would have occurred globally had that been successful? Now that leg, that part of the mission was canceled, again, according to what we know. Why? Because a terrorist, when they screw up, they get arrested, they go to jail, they don't get any more money. That's really good for us. We want the terrorists to screw up. But they're going to go to great lengths to not screw up. Because when they're screwing up, they're doing it in public, right? The cameras are rolling. So it's better to go a little smaller and do a really good job. Again, it's very hard to think about this in the terms I'm talking about, right? Like I have little kids, I'm like, go do a good job on your homework and get an A on the test. The terrorists apply that same thinking to the terrorist attacks. We want to be successful, we want to instill fear, and we want to do it at the lowest possible cost to us. Why? Because when we do it at a low cost, in a low cost way, we have more resources for more attacks. So they're just following the same purposeful behavior that the rest of us follow. I think that's really important because if we kind of say, well, they're crazy, they don't think like us, sure they don't think like us, of course. Especially if we're talking about, you know, radical Islam as a motivating factor for this and restoring the caliphate, which is what al-Qaeda was intentionally declaring that it was doing then these are different values, right? And different motivations and a different vision of what good looks like in the world. We are not, by saying they're rational, we're not agreeing with any of that. All we're saying is that they are purposeful, they're gonna maximize benefits and minimize costs as much as they can. So that's important. That immediately gives you insight into their behavior because it suggests that if we can make terrorism expensive, there'll be less of it. Crazy people don't respond to those incentives. If you make terrorism expensive, maybe they want even more. There's very few people who are actually involved in the perpetration of terrorism across the globe that act like that. And if you look at the lengths that terrorists go to recruit their members, it's evident. It's not just come work for me and you don't get anything in return. No, there's a almost an employee-employer relationship. I have to promise you something whether or not, again, whether or not it's true, whether or not it will ever happen, I have to promise you something. Look at what ISIL's doing. They're providing public goods. Well, they were, right? Their days may be numbered, which is, again, a good thing. But we want to get beyond just ISIL going away. We want to not play foreign policy whack-a-mole. Everybody played that in the arcade. You whack the mole, the new mole comes out. That's bad. So what's going to make the mole go away? It doesn't rear its ugly head somewhere else in another form, in another group. It's changing the values, the ideas, the beliefs, and the constraints. And I think economic freedom has to be part of that. Because think about a world outside our window, rich with economic freedom. Why is it that so few people in the United States are terrorists? Sure, we can have a, a whole separate conversation we don't have time for today about immigration and people get in here and they do bad things. Yes. But I'm talking about most Americans. 
don't wake up in the morning and they're like, I'm sick of the direction of this country. I'm going to blow up buildings. This is rare and exceptional, and that's a good thing, right? So why is that our reality, and it's quite the opposite in Iraq? That's not their reality. The reality is people blow each other up all the time in the name of social change and political change and economic change. It's about the underlying institutions and the way people perceive those institutions and the agency that they have. The agency that people have is very important. So I want to talk about a few things. Again, I want to kind of leave some time for Q&A as well, so I'm going to go through this fast. Terrorism is emergent. If you've been my student or if you are my student, you know I use the word emergent a lot. What it means is that everything depends on the context. Everything depends on the context. It means that the reason that we got bin Laden and then al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia in the late 80s was not an accident. It was, it was a perfect storm of things that were going on, right? We were fighting the Soviets. Um, we were helping the rebel fighters fight the Soviets. Uh, in Saudi Arabia in 1985, prior to the formation of Al-Qaeda, was a place with very little economic freedom and very little political freedom. So all those things matter. So a good economist also has to be a good historian. We have to understand the context, right? So terrorism is emergent. It emerges from the conditions. So the conditions matter a lot. And again, the incentives that people face matter a lot. Why, you know, if you hate who's president or you hated who was president before, why didn't you go blow up buildings? Because <laughs> the costs of doing that are very high for you. You're probably going to get arrested and you're probably going to go to jail and then life is not going to be very good. Right? So that's a good thing, right? Because it curtails, for the most part, bad behavior. And so how do you get those institutional constraints to be effective in other societies? We need to look at that. Um, we need to understand the constraints that the terrorists face. And again, I think if you want to shift uh, the demand and supply curve, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, then we have to think about that in terms of the long run. I don't think it's the right policy objective to say we're going to make terrorism go to zero. I know that voters want to hear that. I want that world, right? But it's not a reality. I, I think that the way we have to say it is, how can we change the constraints that people face such that becoming a terrorist is very expensive. And you have a lot to lose by making that choice. That's the world I want to live in, probably you want to live in. And then we also need to think about what are the costs of combating terrorism. This is not a free, this is not something that's free. Right, that's another lesson of economics is there's no, nothing that's free. So fighting terrorists, dedicating resources and human lives in the fight, we need to do that well, right? We need to be good stewards of those scarce resources and be effective, as effective as possible. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, in my own research, I was really looking at Al-Qaeda. I'm trying to kind of become now um, more versed and more of an expert on ISIL and not yet. But I think you can't just say, what I know about Al-Qaeda is true for everybody else. Why? Because the institutional setting matters so much. So we can understand by looking at history and looking at the context why Al-Qaeda formed, and that might give us some principled insights on how Hamas operates or Boko Haram, but we're going to have to look at each terrorist group individually to understand, again, the constraint that the different actors face, the institutional changes that are, are necessary. So again, bottom line up front, what I'm going to say here is that I think economic freedom is part of our solution. 
I'm not saying that we don't engage in defensive measures, like more security at airports, more border security, more um, kind of understanding who's being recruited, who's donating to terrorist groups. I think that's quite important. But I think that's, again, what I would say, or what I always say, is that's a necessary but not sufficient condition for kind of chasing out terrorist activity. I think the long-run solution has to include economic freedom. So what do I mean when I say that? Milton Friedman is very famous for saying, you know, we talk about prosperity a lot, but we don't know how to measure it. And economists want to measure things. So this is an attempt to measure prosperity. What do we mean when we say that? And economic freedom, you know, this is kind of a layman's way of understanding. It's when people have choice, personal choice. I get to choose which grocery store I go to. I get to choose where I'm going to study. I get to choose what town I'm going to live in. I get to choose the size of my house, etc. And then exchange is coordinated by markets. Markets meaning supply and, you know, situations of supply and demand. So, and the exchange, it's really important there, is voluntary. See, under a centrally planned society or place, exchange is not voluntary. You know, I tell you, there's one grocery store and you go there. That's not voluntary. Right now, I have like a thousand to choose from, right? And so I don't, sometimes I feel, I don't know which one to choose. That's better than having one imposed upon you, Okay. And then freedom to enter and compete in markets. I can open a business. I can decide I'm going to do something and try. There's no guarantees. We're not talking about equality of outcomes here, but we are talking about opportunities to try. And then the protection of persons and their property from aggression by others. So the state has to protect my property and yours, which means I can't encroach upon yours and you can't encroach upon mine. There's a boundary that's set. Again, that's very important here because economic freedom, as you can tell, includes political thinking, right? Political institutions. None of this exists in a vacuum. We talked about this a lot this morning in my class. And Milton Friedman said that. He said, we, we tend to talk about economic freedom and political freedom as if they're wholly separate. They're not. And I want to show you more about that. When I, here's how we measure economic freedom. So there's a great website if you're interested in this. If you just look at Economic Freedom of the World Report, uh, there's an interactive website. You can click on a map and it allows you to pull up a country and see what their score is today, what their score was 25 years ago. It's fascinating. And so we've made a lot of progress since 19, I mean, Milton Friedman kind of said, let's start measuring this in the 70s. I don't think the first report came out until maybe 1980. But here's the five dimensions that we measure. So we actually, as economists, go into a country, we get empirical data, and that translates into a score. Okay, so we're measuring the size of the government, the legal system and the security of property rights, so those are the rule of law. The soundness of money, meaning does the government engage in lots of inflationary practices. Uh, freedom to trade internationally. And the regulations of credit, labor, business, so these types of things. All right, so we look at all those things and we, that kind of amalgamates into a score. And the data is scaled from zero to ten. Zero means no economic freedom, ten means lots of economic freedom. There's no country today that scores a zero technically, uh, and there's no country that gets a 10. Um, and just, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the consequences of economic freedom, but Hong Kong, if just if you're interested, Hong Kong is number one on the index, and I think their score is 9.1 or something, they just crossed over the 9 mark. The worst scoring country right now, or the lowest ranked, is Venezuela. And they have a ranking of two point, or a score of 2.9, something like this. But the, the, the places that we are thinking about when we think about terrorism don't even rank. So Iraq doesn't even have a score. Um, 
Afghanistan doesn't even show up on the index. And it's not that they're, they don't, you know, they're scoring poorly. It's that we can't even trust the data that are, you know, kind of coming out of the official government statistics. So we can't rank them effectively. Um, so if that's true, again, I've been making the claim that it's the institutional context that matters for why people make these choices, and that terrorism is a choice um, relative to other alternatives. And so I want to talk a little bit about what are the consequences of economic freedom. So we can, and I, I realize this is like baptism by fire, but, um, you know, if economic freedom is important in terms of changing the institutions and the incentives people face, why is that so? We know a lot, because we've been tracking this data for a long time, about the outcomes. So here's one, and this is important, because, by the way, right after, so when 9-11 happened, I started my dissertation research, no economists were talking in the journals, the academic journals, about terrorism. Of course, now, 10 years, what's 16 years later, everybody's talking about it. You do a JSTOR search and you can't even get through stuff. There's a lot, which is good, I think, that people are jumping on it. But prior to that, we didn't have a lot of information. So there's a very famous article that came out in 2004, and it was called How to Profile a Terrorist. And it was an economist writing about kind of, are there psychological things we can look at and say, okay, I gotcha, right? If you're this, 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 this. If you're poor, if you're from Pakistan, if you're this, 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 then I can say you're likely to be a terrorist. Guess what the economist found? There's no profile of a terrorist. This is a problem for us as people who want to catch them. But it's actually very illuminating because it tells you that there's a lot of things that go into this choice, right? So we were running around saying, we meaning the discipline of the economics and political science, we were saying, well, terrorists are poor. Terrorists are from places with low levels of education. Like, this stuff isn't, doesn't ring true. It's certainly not consistent. Some terrorists are from poor backgrounds. Some are very rich. Osama bin Laden was a billionaire. Uh, I mean, he's, he's kind of like the dystopian version of Mark Zuckerberg. And I don't mean that as a joke, right? Mark Zuckerberg drops out of college to start Facebook Bin Laden drops out of college to start Al-Qaeda. I want to live in the world where people drop out of Harvard to start Facebook. I assume you do too, right? So very different. Uh, so economic freedom results in much higher levels of income. So if poverty is a factor in terrorism, I think it's A, not a unicausal factor. There's no one thing, right? But if it's part of it, economic freedom is part of the solution. Because as you can see, incomes go up the freer the country is. Uh, annual income earned by the poor is significantly better. Look at this. If you're in a country that's the least free, like Venezuela, the average income of the poor is $1,700 a year. If you're in one of the most free countries, the average income of the poorest, this is the poorest 10% of the population, is $10,000. That's a remarkable difference. Okay. So again, why do we care about income in this conversation? Because income gives people options. And it gives people access. That's important. So economists are always worried about the choice. The more choices people have, the less likely they are to engage in this type of behavior to get what they want. Life expectancy goes up significantly when you move from the least free countries to the most free countries. So what we do know about people who are easily herded up into terrorist cell groups, these are usually the people who commission the attacks, is that they feel disenfranchised. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, there's something called the Global Terrorism Index. And it tells you a lot of information. They put out annual reports. You get a lot of information. Again, just broad trends in what we know. This seems to be true uh, of, of ISIL, uh, which is that you know, the people who are executing the attacks have said in some way that they feel disenfranchised. What makes people feel disenfranchised? Poverty, 
lack of access to political institutions and political representation, short lives, lots of things. I think this is really telling. Don't worry about the numbers, because when we measure political freedom, um, uh, lower number is a better score. It's kind of the opposite of economic freedom. But look at this. When you're in the least free countries, you have the lowest amount of civil and political liberties. When you're in the most free societies, you have the highest amount of political and civil liberties. That's really important. Again, I told you I have more slides than I can go over, but I want to talk about this civic, civic freedoms, civil freedoms and civil associations. Uh, de Tocqueville talked about this a lot if you haven't read Democracy in America, and he talked about the art of association, and he uses this word intermediary institutions, and he said, what makes America so great it's not just that you guys have markets. That's good, right? You know, there's commerce, there's exchange. But it's that people have a way to locally come together and solve problems. And de Tocqueville talk, called this the art of association, that we have these institutions. I mean, think about the way that hospitals emerged in you know, Western Europe and the United States. They were nonprofit, charitable organizations, right? It wasn't until much later that hospitals, some, became for-profit. So that is very correlated with the level of economic freedom. So in societies that have very low levels of economic freedom, they have low levels of political freedoms and civil freedoms. That leads directly to this idea of disenfranchisement from the society, right? You have no opportunities. Maybe you don't have a lot of education. Maybe you don't come from an influential family. And you're being radicalized. And you don't have any alternatives by which you see fit to change your situation. Remember I said those three things of human action apply to everybody. So then maybe becoming a terrorist is a way to be part of a community. That's weird for us to think about, but it matters. So the lack of any other type of community, these guys are jumping in and saying, you're part of the family now, and when you die, we're going to give money to your parents for your sacrifice. Right? So we want, again, it's always about people weighing their trade-offs. I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, what I do want you to look at, this is an economic freedom, this is a map of the world, looking at economic freedom around the whole world. It is no coincidence, and in about 10 slides from now, which I won't get to, I'll show you that the places that are most ripe for terrorism, where terrorists are most active in terms of the emergence of the groups and people killed per capita by terrorism. Okay, so those are two different things we're looking at. Groups and organizing and people getting killed. It's in the places that have the least amount of economic freedom. And that would be the gray. In fact, the gray areas are places that we have a harder time measuring, right? The red are mostly unfree, and the blue are mostly free, right? So here are places, blue, where you don't see a lot. It doesn't mean zero, right? But the correlation is that there's the higher levels of economic freedom have less of this type of activity. Um, and the less economic freedom you have, you actually have more of this type of activity that's emerging, okay? So we want to look at how that's going to change what the consequences are of that. I probably have to stop soon. You don't need all this. This is like a list of all the countries. Um, but I do think it's interesting. Look at the, this is the least free. Venezuela, Congo, Libya, Chad, Syria, Argentina, Algeria. I mean, it, Iran. It's all, a, a lot of the places that we're worried about, right? And we're worried for the future. So terrorists are, again, they're going to hunt and peck where they are, they're opportunistic in the same way that the rest of us are. So, you know, they're going to move around. In fact, in the literature, um, I'm going to hand it all over this, sorry. Uh, I'm going to see if I, all right. 
In the literature in political science and economics, we talk about a roving versus a stationary bandit. Dictators are stationary bandits, right? They set up shop, they're public, they are in charge and they let you know it. And you follow their orders or bad things will happen to you, right? So think about the difference between you know, a political dictator and a terrorist group. Terrorists are what we call roving bandits. They move around. If you look at the genealogy and the history of Al-Qaeda, they moved around, right? So they started in Saudi Arabia, they went to the Sudan, they went to Afghanistan. They're opportunistic. They're going to look for a safe haven where they can dominate, recruit, and get donations. That's going to fund their organization. So lastly, so I think this is really important because it gets to, again, look at these places where they're going. Places that historically have had the worst economic freedom scores and no political freedoms. So it's right for a roving bandit. So again, I think economic freedom is part of the broader conversation about how you make these places go away. Right? Nobody's, you know, well not nobody, I shouldn't say, you never say nobody, right? But people aren't going to Kentucky, you know, to start terrorist groups. On average, it doesn't mean it can't happen. We have a lot of lone wolf. This is kind of the new emergence in terrorism, is going from group activity, which is what Al-Qaeda was. Al-Qaeda has really shifted, by the way, uh, especially since the death of um, bin Laden, which is it used to be a command and control regime, very militaristic, okay? So there's people at the top, and they direct ordered everybody else to do things. Now it's more like a franchise where you can claim the brand and you can do things, but you don't have the same access to the resources. Uh, so it changes their potency. Uh, so I, I really need to stop. I'm sorry. But one thing, I want to leave us with this idea or this thought. Terrorism operates on the supply and demand model, as does everything else. If we want less terrorism, we can't just focus on the supply curve, meaning border security, airport security. That's important. I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm saying it's important for that not to be the only thing. Because if that's the only thing we do, the terrorists are just going to find a workaround, right? Well, you secured the, the um, you know, the TSA's doing a good job at the airport, so now I'm going to do something else. They're just going to switch, switch tactics. Why? Because there are people that are funding them. This is a demand curve. Supply responds to demand. Always. Supply responds to demand. Supply exists because there's demand. Whole Foods is down the street because you want to go there some of the time. And a lot of people do. Right? So Al-Qaeda exists because there are people who want it to. Who people want to consume this. Good. Why? Why do people... This is like... When I was at the CIA, this was what I wanted to focus all my attention on. What are the donors' goals? This is a copy of um, an early list of funders that was seized during a 2002 raid of Al-Qaeda. So this is a list of funders. And they're bankers, businessmen, former ministers... By the way, this group is operating on, no, the Heritage Foundation, everybody know what that is, is right down the street, huge think tank. That's like a third of their yearly budget. So Al-Qaeda is like a ragtag team of disenfranchised guys in 1988, forms this little coalition, and by 2001, they launched the most successful terrorist attack on U.S. soil ever, on $30 million. 19 hijackers. At the time, it's estimated there were 170 members in the group. That's incredible. That's a lot of risk. That's putting all your bets on the table when you're in Al-Qaeda's position. We want to think deeply about what motivates people to support that activity. So in my own research, I focused a lot not just on the suicide bombers, because 
I said this in my class this morning, I can understand that a little bit. I can reason it. I can say, okay, you, you take disenfranchised people in one way or another, and you exclude them, and you isolate them, and you radicalize them, you amp it up, and maybe you can get people to do things that are bad. But what I really want to know is what banker who's clearly benefiting in some way from market exchange writes a $10 million check but would never himself run his own, you know, run an airplane into a building because the cost of that is way too high. They want to live, but they want to fund this extreme activity. We need to understand that. And we need to say, well, what kind of world do we have to live in for that $10 million check, $10 million check not to be written to Al-Qaeda, but to be, to, to be developing a nonprofit or, you know, kind of educational reform or whatever it is that is leading to this disenfranchised, uh, people being disenfranchised. Okay, so I have to stop. I'm sorry. There's a lot more I could talk about and a lot more I'd like to talk about. But my, my only, my, the bottom line here is that we have to understand this. Because if we don't, we're just going to run around and try to crush the thugs. I think we have to crush the thugs, for lack of a better term. But the, to, we got to make sure we're having a long-term view to make sure there's no replacement thugs. Because there always are. And I think economic freedom is part of that. Now, how do we establish economic freedom where it doesn't already exist? This is hard. And it's probably outside the scope of a lot of policy. You know, we can't say, okay, guys, you know, in Afghanistan, we're really good at economic freedom. We'll give you a tutorial. This is what you do. You read the Constitution. Here's some Milton Friedman. Boom. No. Why is it not that easy? Because it's emergent. Because people in Afghanistan have to believe that they should respect other people's property. And they have to believe that they have an arbitrator in the government that's going to protect that. And their history has been their government is their biggest oppressor. So you can't just flip a switch. So I do think there are ways that we can increase economic freedom. One easy way is trade. Because when we trade with people, we're not just trading goods and services for dollars. We're trading ideas. We're trading culture. We're trading values. We're trading an ethical system. If I engage in a contract with a Pakistani firm that manages, you know, kind of manufactures athletic socks, which happens today, right? There are exports that come out of Pakistan. I'm not just getting athletic socks for dollars. We're now engaged in a trade that requires us to trust one another, right? I'm going to write this contract. You're going to give me the socks. I'm going to give you the money. And then we're going to do that again next year, and next year, and next year. See, trust is fostered in societies where we have a lot of economic freedom. So I think trade is a key aspect, a key part of this. Because we can't just go in and make Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq economically free tomorrow. That has to come internally. But we have to give people exit options, and I think trade does that. So I'm going to stop. I'm sorry for the whirlwind um, terrorism and economic freedom talk, but I'm happy to... Can we share my email address just if people who are here who are not yeah. my students and don't have it, they can ask questions later. I can make that happen, so great. Thank you guys. Sorry,